give you time to turn there, Genesis 6, we're going to start in verse 9, and then we're going to end in the middle of the flood narrative, in chapter 7, verse 5. I'll read it all as we begin, I invite you, if you are willing and able to stand with me as we read God's word. Genesis 6, 9 to 7, 5, according to the NIV, says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all the Lord commanded him. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we pray that you would teach us old truths from a familiar story. Make your word alive in us and cause us to worship and praise you. Whether here in this room, watching online, or the kids other in the other room, may this moment in this place now be a house of worship to you. Amen. The following was told on National Public Radio in November of 1988. And the story goes, in 1958, America's first commercial jet air service began with the flight of the Boeing 707. A month after that first flight, a traveler on a piston-engine, propeller-driven DC-6 airliner struck up a conversation with a fellow passenger. The passenger happened to be a Boeing engineer. 
The traveler asked the engineer about the new jet aircraft, whereupon the engineer began speaking at length about the extensive testing Boeing had done on the jet engine before bringing it into commercial service. He recounted Boeing's experience with engines from the B-17 to the B-52. When his traveling companion asked him if he himself had yet flown on the new 707 jet airliner, the engineer replied, I think I'll wait until it's been in service a while. Talking about faith is one thing. Actually living it out is quite another. And of course, we are a people of faith. We are anything. We are a people of faith. We are a people of belief. As Christians, everything is built around what we believe. And we believe some pretty incredible things. We believe that God is creator of all things. We believe that we are all descended from Adam and Eve. We believe sin and death have spread to all people because of humanity's disobedience to a holy God. We believe God is Lord and judge and will judge the earth for its sins, but that he has also put a plan in place to save people from every tribe and nation. We believe God sent his Son, who himself is God, to become a man and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. We believe the Son, Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. We believe Jesus Christ died for our sins, paying for our punishment, in our place, on a cross. We believe Jesus didn't stay dead, but was buried for three days and then resurrected from the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We believe Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit, who is God, out into the world. We believe the Spirit is currently building Christ's church, calling people to believe in Jesus and accept his free offer of forgiveness and salvation, bringing people from spiritual death to spiritual life. We believe Jesus Christ will come again and judge the world. We believe that all those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, all those who have not accepted the free offer of forgiveness and salvation will pay for their sins in eternal judgment. And we believe that all those who have believed in him by faith, by grace, will be resurrected to live in a perfected creation forever where sin will be no more and we will be with God forever. That is what we believe, right? Amen? Whole gospel story. And it's all incredible. But for us, it's a matter of life and death. It's why it's important. It's why Jude calls us to contend for the faith delivered to us. It's why Paul calls us, his protege Timothy, to watch your life and your doctrine closely. Because for us, faith is a matter of life and death. And for us, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a phrase repeated several times throughout Scripture, maybe most notably in Romans 1.17. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Then he says in 117, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's true for us, and it was true for Noah. Noah was a righteous man, as the text tells us. Noah was a man of faith, as we'll see. And Noah lives. Why? Because the righteous shall live by faith. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning from this story. We're going to skip around a bunch in the section, so you'll stay loose in your Bibles or just pay attention to the slides. We're going to skip around and see that the righteous shall live by faith. And first, we're going to see that Noah is righteous. And that's repeated a couple times. We saw last week in verse 8 of chapter 6 that Noah found favor, he found grace in the eyes of God, that, that God's grace rested upon Noah. Now we see how that grace is worked out as Noah lives a righteous life, as a righteous man. Noah is righteous. We start in verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, 
blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Our story begins with Noah. We've been introduced to him a couple times, but now we really start his story. And every time in Genesis when you see, this is the account of, or these are the generations of, happens a number of times throughout Genesis, and every time it does that, it's the start of a new story, kind of a new part of the family. So that's where we're starting with Noah and his three sons. And what we learn is that Noah is righteous. Now what that does not mean is that Noah is perfect, and we're going to see that. What it does mean is that he's righteous. And when the Old Testament used righteous, that word, particularly to describe people, what it means is that they, they were righteous relative to the people. Right? Not absolute righteousness compared to God's holy standard, but righteous compared to people, and particularly righteous according to the commands of God. They were obedient to the ethics of the Lord. They, they walked with the Lord, as it says. The same way that Enoch walked faithfully with God, it says Noah walked faithfully with God. He was a righteous person who walked according to the ways of God. especially in comparison to everybody else. Everyone else was corrupted. The text is clear. Wherever you look elsewhere, corruption had taken over. It threatened to destroy God's creation. The hope of humanity and the earth would be lost if that corruption were to continue. You may know this. I've, I kind of mentioned this in passing but in the ancient world, there are other cultures that had flood stories, right? This isn't the only flood story, and I think that lends to the viability of there actually being a flood, because multiple cultures and stories attest to that there was a flood at some point. The other flood stories account for it differently, and in one other flood story, the reason the flood comes is because the gods were so annoyed with humanity because humanity had become too much, there were too many people, and they were too loud, and I think whoever wrote that story had kids. Um, the, the, the gods were crying out for silence. There were too many people. It had become too loud. So the reason they flooded the world, or the flood came, is to quiet down the earth. They're so sick of people and all their noise. And then once the floodwaters came, the gods themselves were scared because the flood was uncontrollable. That is a different motivation and story than what we have here in Genesis. Why does the flood come in Genesis? Not because God hates his people, not because God is sick of his people, because God loves his people, loves his creation, doesn't want it to die. That if this corruption continued, the whole earth would be corrupt, so God says, I need to start over, lest there be no hope at all for humanity, for creation. So that's what he does. He destroys the earth and the people. In fact, the word used for destroy in this story is the same word that's used for corrupt. The people come corrupt, and it's a play on words, Basically saying, the people were corrupted, so God would corrupt them. The whole earth had become corrupt, so God was going to corrupt it, or destroy it. The, the punishment would fit the crime, so to speak. All the earth would be destroyed except for one man. One man stands out above them all, Noah, and God reaffirms this himself. He says this in 7.1. First verse of chapter 7, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. God found Noah to be righteous, which I think is a way of saying, 
I have both made you righteous and declared and evaluated you as righteous. Noah is a righteous man, and I think it's notable the way it says this, in this generation, meaning compared to all others, in this generation, Noah stands out as righteous. And I want us to meditate on that. Noah was alone in his righteousness. Noah was strange, an outcast, different in his righteousness. It is proof that truth and righteousness and goodness are not determined by popular vote. The consensus of Noah's day was evil. It was once common medical practice to cure illnesses by bloodletting. You may be familiar with this practice. It was believed that illness came from having too much blood in it, and to cure the illness, excess blood needed to be drained from the patient. So leeches would be put on people, people would be cut open to, to cure them by draining blood. According to something I saw on the internet, where there's never a lie, uh, five to six million leeches were used in Paris yearly in the 30s. can't remember if that's 18 or 1930s. You can Google it. But at one point, it's common practice to let people bleed. Uh, at one point in medical history, it was widely believed that the body was controlled by four fluids, four humors. Blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And these four humors, these four fluids, not only controlled your physiology, but your psychology. They affected your mood, right? That was widespread popular belief. In the mid-1800s, a Hungarian doctor by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis theorized that many patients in his hospital were dying because doctors were handling corpses before treating live patients. And he said, and he kind of made a connection at one point, oh, this is interesting, this is right before germ theory as it was starting to uh, come into vogue, right before that, he started having his doctors in his hospital wash their hands after touching corpses, and deaths went way down in his hospital. He tried then to convinced the medical community that hand-washing might be a helpful practice, and he faced extreme resistance and was mocked for the idea. Popular opinion doesn't always get it right. And that's true in science or in matters of faith or any other thing. Just because it's popularly believed does not mean it's true. Just because the world says it is so it does not mean you're crazy for believing otherwise. Truth is true because it is true regardless of how many people believe in it. Righteousness is righteous because it conforms with God's standards, not because it is popularly accepted. G.K. Chesterton once said, a man with a definite belief always appears bizarre. A man with a definite belief always appears bizarre. What he's saying is, if you want to have popular spirituality, popular religion, keep it vague and fuzzy. Vague spirituality, vague religion, will always be accepted. And many Christians have built a platform, sold books on this notion. Keep it vague, and it'll be acceptable. But as soon as you get specific, that is when people are turned off. 
as soon as you define what you mean, define terms, no, this is what God has said, you will always be looked at as strange. We should not be surprised by this. When Jesus talked about the way of life, did he say the path of life to the path to the kingdom is really broad and most people get it? Is that what Jesus said? The, the path of life, well, you'll be able to tell it by the polls. You'll be able to tell it by how comfortable you feel in school or in your work, whatever it may be, that whatever is popularly accepted, popularly believed, that is the path of life. Or did Jesus say, enter through the narrow gate? For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I don't know how big the door was on the ark, but it was only big enough for Noah and his family. It was a narrow gate. Noah is, was righteous, and he was different from everyone around him. I say that to you as a warning and a comfort. You who are Christian, you who believe the definite and specific truths of Scripture, you will be seen as weird. You will be counted as strange. Some of you who will earn that. Some of us are weird. But I'm not talking about being different for different sake. Being antisocial for antisocial sake. I'm saying, if you're going to be definitely Christian, you will be an alien in this world, just as Noah was. How did he do it? He was able to be righteous because Noah had faith. The second thing we see about Noah, Noah has faith. How do we know Noah has faith? He builds a boat. Pretty simple. That's a faith action. Noah has faith. We see this in just the simple fact that he heard God's word, believed it, and then did it. Verse 13 through 16. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Stop there. What does it mean to have faith? First, it means to know something to be true even if you can't see it. I have faith in germ theory. I can't see it, but I know it to be true. The author of Hebrews talks about Noah's faith, where he says in Hebrews 11, 6 and 7, Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah is a man of great 
faith. He had never seen a flood before. No one had ever seen that. In fact, I don't know this, but we're not sure if anyone had even seen rain before at this point. Genesis 2.5 hints that at some point there had not yet been rain on the earth. And I don't know if that continued until Noah's day. It's possible there had not really ever been a rainfall like we see here in the spring, you know. At the very least, he had never seen a flood. Noah had never seen God's judgment before. He had never made a boat. All the things that were coming were things that Noah had no context for. It was all future, it was all unknown, all mysterious, and yet Noah went about building a boat because God said. Now, there are a lot of things we don't know about this boat, about this ark. It's sometimes hard to separate fact from fiction and what we've heard in tales and what's actually in scripture. So there are a lot of things we don't know. We don't know where the ark was built. We don't know how long it took Noah to build the ark. We're not sure who helped Noah build the ark. Maybe his sons. Maybe he had hired helpers. We don't know if Noah tried to get others to join him in the boat. Second Peter says Noah preached in some way. But God also gives him clear instructions that only his family will join him. So we don't know what Noah's relationship was with people around him. We don't know if, how others responded. Church history kind of says that others ridiculed him, but we don't know how, the truth of that. We don't know how many species of animals went into the boat and how many were needed to repopulate. There's so many things we don't know about this story. But we know Noah followed the Lord and built the boat. Here's what we do know. It's called an ark. The only other place outside of the flood narrative where this word, Hebrew word for ark, is used, is in Exodus. Some of you may know it. It was another little boat. It was to describe the basket that Moses was placed in. The only two places in scripture where this word for ark is used in the flood narrative in Noah's basket, or Moses' basket. We know the ark is made out of gopher wood or cypress wood, whatever that is. We know it's covered in pitch or tar. That's for water sealing. That's good. If a flood's coming, good for a boat to be waterproof. Um, if you're like me and you've seen the commercial for the flex seal, that's what I picture. We also know the dimensions of the boat. In translating from cubits, it was 450. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. About one and a half football fields long. It was big. It needed to be big. A whole lot of animals. It had a roof. I'm not sure exactly what that roof looked like, but it seems like that roof covered the whole boat, and then there was a space about one and a half feet between the roof and the top of the boat where light could shine in. Last we know it had a door for entry and exit. That's about what we know about the ark from Scripture. We also know it's going to be filled with animals. So we go to verse 19. Noah and his family aren't going alone. They're going to be zookeepers. You're going to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You're going to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. So Noah is to take two of every kind of animal, male and female, for repopulation. He's supposed to take all kinds of food for him and the animals. And you ever thought or wondered why such a focus on the animals in this story? You'll 
hear about them over and over again, all the way through the flood narrative. Why was God so insistent upon bringing the animals along? Is it just so we could have wonderful children's books later? Uh, like a Disney movie where you need animal sidekicks, you know, to sell stuff to animals. Is that why the animals are here? Is there a theological reason for the inclusion of the animals? I think there is. Noah is going to be the new Adam. A new creation will start through him. The image of God will be carried on through Noah. And part of the image of God is having dominion over creation, caretaking, cultivating the world. So God ensures that that work will continue from Adam through Noah. And imagine you're Noah, getting this instruction from God. There's no context for this. He's never seen anything like this. How does he know which animals make the list? Is he supposed to go out and wrangle them? Or are they going to come to him? How's that going to happen? How many seasons of doubt did he have while building it? I imagine this took a few years. It's a big boat. I don't know whether God revisited him throughout, encouraging him, or if this is the only word he had. All he could do was build this boat because God said so. All he had to rely on was the word. We are not in a dissimilar position. How many of you have seen Jesus Christ or touched him with your own eyes and hands? How many of you have actually seen angels? How many of you have actually seen the judgment day that is to come? How many of you have seen God, seen physically the apostles? There is a whole lot I have not seen with my own eyes or touched with my own hands. But I have a word. And faith is living by the word and trusting that what you have heard and what God has said is true even if you can't see it at all. And not only that, acting on it, which is what Noah did. There's this phrase repeated throughout the story in verses 22 and then in seven one, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. This is the second component of true faith. Not just believing in what you can't see, but then also acting on what has been said. Acting on God's word. Pastor Kent Hughes said, The righteous person rests everything on the bare word of God and obeys it. This is what made Noah righteous. This is in some ways a definition of righteousness. This is a definition of faith. Believing what God has said, even though you can't see it, then acting on it and putting it in action. Let that be true of us. As we are believers, may we be doers of the word, not hearers only. So when Jesus says he is going to build his church and bring people from all nations into it, that's not just something to be believed, that is something to be acted upon. So we ought to be people who want to see people brought into the church from all nations that should change the way we act. And if Jesus commands us 
to make disciples, if we actually believe that Jesus commanded us that, then we will shape our life around Jesus' words and make disciples. Not just believing that to be true, but actually acting upon it. And if we believe, as Paul says, that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, then we will act as those who are not condemned. We will act as those who have life by God's grace, living lives of actual, active rejoicing and confidence in God's salvation. If we believe that God promises that he will take care of us, that he knows what we need, that he will clothe us and feed us, that he will give us what we need if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if we believe that to be true, then that will change the way we act. And anxiety and worry and fear will be lessened because of our actual belief that God is who he says he is. If we believe that Christ is telling the truth when he says he's going to return in judgment, that will change the way we live preparing for the judgment that is to come. For that day we will stand before Jesus Christ. So our whole lives as Christians ought to be lives of faith, believing and then doing because of it. We ought to live our lives in such a way that they would not make sense if God's word was not true. If somebody looked at your life and said, that is a weird, strange life, it can only be accounted for the possibility, the reality that God, God said is true. And if you were to find out tomorrow that nothing of Scripture is true, would that drastically change the way you live? It should. Because your whole life should be oriented around the truths that God has proclaimed. If we are righteous, our righteousness will be shown by faith that trusts God's word and then does something about it. Like Noah. He built a boat. That is faith in action. And because of that, he'll live. It's the last thing we need to hear from this. Noah's righteous. Noah's faith. So Noah shall live. Noah shall live. Verse 17 and 18. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all of life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Everything Noah does rests on this promise. I will make my covenant with you and you will live. You will be saved. You and your family. It's a promise of life that is implemented as God calls Noah and his family into the ark. So we see in chapter 7, it's time to enter the ark that Noah has built. And I don't know how long this took, but at some point, the boat was done and the flood was coming. So God calls Noah into the ark and he says, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, male and its mate. And also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, that will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. 
Noah is found to be righteous, and he will continue to show his righteousness even while he's in the ark. What do I mean by that? Is there a detail here that maybe you've never noticed before? Maybe particularly about the number of animals? Pair? One pair, male and female, of every kind of animal, except a couple kinds of animals. Clean animals? Seven pairs. Birds? Seven pairs. Why? Here's my speculation. I think I have a good biblical foundation for speculation. For speculation. Noah's going to keep worshiping while he's in the ark. How do you keep alive? Animals you want to sacrifice? Take more of them. God calls him to take some clean animals and birds. Take an abundance of those. You're going to need them throughout your stay. Like Noah and his family continuing to worship, continuing to praise, offering sacrifices for sins and goodwill offerings to the Lord and worship. And as he passed through the waters of judgment, Noah would worship and live. It's the promise of God. There are many, many investments you will make in this life. You have no idea how they'll turn out. Even when you, you buy a ticket to go to the movie theater. You may read reviews, but you don't know if you'll actually enjoy the movie until you watch it. If you invest in sports and are a fan, you do not know if your investment will be worth it. And if you're a fan of Kansas basketball, a little bit harder this year. You don't always know if your investment of time and energy and money will be worth it. In relationships, relationships, loving others, those are risks. Because you do not know, as you invest in others and love other people, if that love will be returned or if it will be worth it in the end. You don't know what you will get out of that investment in the end. It is an unknown. All of life is unknown investment. And if there's one thing that you can take to the bank, if there's one investment that bears no risk at all, it's faith in the Lord. Believe me, and here's the promise that runs throughout all of Scripture, on every page of Scripture. In judgment, you will live. Though judgment may come, that you may be guilty, believe, have faith in the promises of God, and you will live. It is the promise of Scripture, the promise of Jesus Christ, the promise of this flood narrative. The righteous shall live by faith. I take that as a promise. Those who are righteous and believe in the Lord, they shall live by faith. And I also take that as a command, a commissioning. The righteous, this is how they live. Live by faith. If you are a righteous person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, you must live a life of faith. For those who are not Christians, this is the truth you are to consider. The righteous shall live by faith. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in God, I will say something about you that I think to be true, that deep down inside you know judgment's coming. That whatever 
obstacles you've put in the front of your mind and the back of your mind and deep down in your heart, you know there's a God and you know you'll be held accountable. And there's a question that plagues you, though you won't admit it, you won't bring it up even in your own mind or talk to others about it. There's a question that plagues you deep down inside, which is, how am I going to live? How will I stand on that day? Scripture gives you the answer. The righteous shall live by faith. God offers a means of escape, an ark of salvation, a way of righteousness. Trust in the word of God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given his life for you and has made a way of escape in judgment. And next week, we'll talk more about those waters of judgment that come. Actually, in a few weeks, we're going to get to Good Friday, or Palm Sunday and Easter first. We're going to delay judgment. As God has mercifully done for us. There, tie it up back in. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Lord, Father and God, we do thank you for delayed judgment. For if you had not delayed, had not been patient, then what hope would there be for us? But as it is, you've been patient, you've been merciful, you've sent first an ark for Noah and for us a cross. And if we believe, we'll be saved. And Lord, I pray that we will be a people of belief and a people of action who put our faith into practice, who are not just hearers but doers of your word. Even when we stand alone, even when it feels like we are strange and aliens in this world, that we would live our lives in a way that shows we trust you because you have spoken to us truth. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for life. May we live obediently to you, Lord. Amen.